Welcome to the Life Coaching with Ryan podcast, episode 13. So today we wrap up our theme of the month, Wrongness of Death. As I conclude my conversation with Jenny, I just want to shout out uh, my new patrons one more time. John and Aaron, thank you so much. Uh, There will be no Q&A wrap-up this month as we move on to a new topic for November, uh, which is going to be the mind-body connection. So with that, please enjoy. Yeah, uh, something that I think is very interesting and why I called this theme the wrongness of death is because I find in our culture we think of death as separate from life as somehow evil because it takes life um we see it as a, as a deficit yes um, and we see it as a cutting out of as it were a removal of something and, and we want to remain whole and therefore death is is bad so one thing that i found very interesting in my conversation with chris was his that we talked about the difference between a dying ritual and a death ritual right? Mm. We don't tend to have dying rituals in our culture. Um, You said, you know, either you're there for your parents' death or you're not. That's a right or a wrong thing. We don't have what, what is the year before your parents' death look like? If you know for a full year that they're going to die or, you know, other than unction or, you know, the sacraments for, for the dying or the sick, they're specific to certain religious practices. Oh, I lost you for a second there and you came back. That's good. (laughs) Um, We don't really have anything for that. And then from my conversation with you right now, what I'm also hearing is we don't have any reintegration rituals or practices either. We have death is awful. Now you're dead. Let's accept that you're dead by having a memorial, funeral, burial, cremation, whatever it is. And then as soon as we're done with that, let's get back to living life, right? Yes. But there seems to be no honoring of the dying process, nor honoring of the living without this person process. Yes. I agree. So what, what is it that you would have liked? Like as far as, Hmm, as a culture, what could we consider, you know, in, in, in this example from your experience, what would you have liked from people or what would you have liked from our societal expectations or what, you know, what would that have looked like for you if you had had what you wanted or needed? I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind, it's a really good question. And I think I'm consistently trying to ask that of myself and, show up and participate with people that I know have lost people in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, there's certain languages like languaging that I find is, is with good intention, but doesn't land. It doesn't help. Um, there's two things. I think people, once you lose someone and you start talking about them, it gets weird in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, I have maybe a few friends where I start to say, Oh my gosh, my mom would totally like that. Um, and they engage with that conversation. They're not afraid to talk about my mom. <laughs> um, I do it consciously with my daughter because I want her to know that you always are alive. And there's no weirdness when someone dies. Like you can talk about them. You can bring them into the conversation. I, and sometimes I feel like 
my mom is in the conversation. I feel like she is there and I don't, I feel like they're dead, move on. It, it, mm. I think people get weird around, why is she talking about her mom? Like, how do we participate with this? Like, her mom's dead. Maybe she just needs to talk about her mom to feel better. You know, I, I think we need to understand that that is a way of grief yeah. that is appropriate and important. Um, that that person needs to still be alive within that person. Um, and sometimes talking mm -hmm. about them or hiring someone to connect with them esoterically, which people do, or doing art or I mean, it is important to keep that connection. It's essential for grief to keep that connection. So that's the first thing. I think people are afraid and don't know what to do about that. It's like, ooh, they'll say the wrong thing. It's an, it's a very awkward situation for most people, and I rightfully so. There's no right thing to say. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of wrong things to say. But, um, I think for me, the thing that got me the most was when I heard at my mom's funeral or even after the fact, you know what, Jenny, now she's in peace. Now she's no longer in pain. Um, obviously means it means well they they are trying to to make a situation better but for me it was like yeah but she's not here she's dead so yeah thank you but you know i don't care that she feels better i feel like shit can we just be exactly. real about that for a second can we just be real that she, i i feel like shit that yeah. my mom is dead yeah. and I'm in pain and I, I don't fucking care that she's no longer in pain. I'm in pain. So right. there's this removal right. of the, and, and I know that sounds selfish and I actually don't mean it to sound selfish. It's just but it is what it is. There's no acknowledgement. There's so many other people involved in the situation and I had to watch her in pain and I don't want her to go. I didn't want her to go. Right. I wanted her to not be in pain and stay. So right. thank you for, and it's like, shake my hand. They go and their lives go on their lives go on and I'm sitting there going, that didn't make me feel better. <laughs> like, yeah, I have to go home without a mom and you get to go home and you're like, I made her feel better. I know, I, I know people mean well, but that was a trigger for me. That just kept like, oh, like over and over again. So I think we need to be mindful about our languaging. Even if we say the wrong thing, people need to say that doesn't feel good when you say that I didn't have the capacity to do it in that moment but I feel like now I do like here's what you can say this is what feels good actually you just standing there and letting me cry feels so good like being willing to advocate for your own grief I think people need education and you need to tell them that that's what I'm learning it's like you know what Jenny just tell them like, I just need you to listen right now. And that's all. So, yeah, maybe it's more about that. Well, it's interesting you say that. I think similar to your talking about, well, I'll tell you later. Because right now in the first six months, I just need to experience it. And then I'll, afterwards, I'll be able to tell you, hey, this is what was going on for me. I don't see that it's much different in what we're talking about right now. I'm only imagining how ineffectual it would be to tell someone who's trying to comfort you that how they're trying to comfort you is not working. Some people can receive that really well and they'd be able to go, oh my gosh, tell me what you do want me to do and I'll do it right away. Some people are capable of that. Um, but we're not really raised to be very capable of that where there's a certain defensiveness that's inherent, I think. 
I agree. Where a lot of people would just say, would just put just like, oh, you, you didn't receive the care I was trying to give you. You've rejected me. And now I'm mad at you for rejecting me. And that's a very natural, normal human yes. experience. Yes. Um, which is why I think it's valuable to have these conversations now so that anyone who is listening could consider um, oh, I really want to be effective with this person who just experienced loss. I wonder how I could do that. And now they have more tools, right? Yep. So, for, so, so in relation to what you were just describing, you know, I lost a teacher a couple years ago and um, showed up at the funeral and I was emotional, but not emotional. And I couldn't quite figure out, like I couldn't place how I was feeling, what was going on for me. And then um, this is one of my teachers as an adult right? This is a spiritual teacher and um, someone who was in our, you know, gatherings, our classes with me, who was a fellow student. Um, he and I walked up to each other after the service was done. And there was an instant catharsis because we threw our arms around each other and we both just started sobbing. I was sobbing so hard. I didn't know he was crying. I was heaving so much. I couldn't feel that he was heaving. And I had no clue anything was happening other than just completely dumping out yes. all that emotion that I didn't even know I had buried. And he was doing the same. And when we finally, after I don't know how long we were crying, holding each other, <laughs> we finally parted, I saw his face and that he had been crying too, but I couldn't even tell. And so we were present for each other in that moment, in that way, without even being fully conscious that we were doing for each other what we were doing. Does that yes. make sense? And yes. there's just something very powerful about that. I'm like, oh my God, I needed that so much. And he said, oh my God, I needed that so much too. Uh, and there aren't very many circumstances that are comfortable, welcome, acceptable, et cetera, in our culture where two grown men would throw their arms around each other and just sob. That's true. Um, and I, I'm not saying that as an indictment, um, but certainly I was very grateful, I guess, to, to put a, a clearer picture on it. I was very grateful in that moment that that was okay. Yes. I was very grateful for that. I would not have wanted to talk about it. I would not have wanted to hear any words. Just being able to cry was yep. huge. Yep. It was huge. Yeah. Um, so any other specific thoughts that you have about what that integration process could look like after yeah, you I also feel like you were talking about crying. I mean, I cry at everything. Uh, I think our initial and mine included, like, especially when it's my daughter, my initial reaction is to go help touch, hold, um, and I think, you know, grieving and crying are really interesting. And do you want me to, do you want me to hold you? Do you want me to sit right here? Um, and, and, and asking those questions and, and being okay with allowing someone to be in pain and without the need to fix it, you can't fix it. You just can't fix it. And I think death is something we just can't fix. We can't make it better. We can't eat it away. We can't deny it away. It's so final. It's so real. 
that it, it forces you to really look at life in a very different way. And there's no fixing. You just, you become really acquainted with the depth of your grief and how pain it, how painful it can be. Um, and it's, it's transformative actually. It's really transformative if you allow yourself um, to go through that. I think, I remember in 9-11, I lived in New York for 9-11 and you know, it was pretty- I didn't know pretty, that. It was pretty fucked up, <laughs> it was like, yeah. you know, people with white dust all over, I couldn't find my partner. I mean, it was trauma and, mm -hmm. I remember two days later, I think it was Giuliani who was the, I don't remember who the mayor, he's like, get back out there and shop. Let's keep, let's keep making New York great. And I remember feeling like, seriously? Seriously? I just, it, it hit me like, this is how we need, this is how we have to grieve because it's so painful. We're like, what can I do to not feel this? What can I do? It just reminded me. And I remember New York was like, we're not going to do that. We're going to, do visuals we're gonna do visuals we're gonna you know like we're gonna cry we're gonna have in parks just cry and I remember going thank god you know like we're not shopping and eating at restaurants right now this is you know so I feel yeah my last thing is I think people have a timeline whether it's conscious or subconscious I think it's in us and in other people where we should be done with our grief right right I think it's Elizabeth Kubler-Ross talks about the, you know, the different stages. And I agree with those stages, not in the same order as her, but, right. um, but even that to me, even though I appreciate it, feels so regimented. Uh, mm -hmm. I remember I was like in my anger phase and a friend's like, oh, you're in the anger phase. And I'm like, what? I'm, I'm, exactly. I just, right off. <laughs> no, I'm in anger, shock, sadness, betrayal phase. I'm not just in my anger phase. So right. I get it because we want to compart, we want to control it because it's so outside of our logic and we're so afraid of it mm. that we need to do all these things. And I appreciate it, but that shit goes out the window. It's just like, <laughs> I feel like I'm losing you. Did I lose you? Oh, there we go. For a split second and you came back. Okay. Anyway, yeah, it's like- hotel Wi-Fi. Yeah. <laughs> I was so afraid this was going to happen, but I'm glad that we're doing this anyway. I'll, I'll, I'll see how good or bad it is in post-production. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so I may be doing an intro. I can almost guarantee I'll be doing an intro that says, hi, everybody. This was recorded in a hotel room while I was <laughs> away. So um, anyway, yeah, I think um, that... For me, what's so interesting about this wrongness of death is that in, in many ways in our culture, it's just a wrongness of intensity. Yes. Wrongness of discomfort. Yes. And, and what is becoming really apparent to me as you're talking about your experience is how applicable it is outside of the realm of dealing with death. How yeah. dealing with anyone who is in a space where... Um, they're not going to be rational. It's not going to be okay. You know, um, I've said this a lot, especially when working with uh, younger students, but really adults or anybody else. Uh, you just I tell it to the younger students so that they can be thinking about it as they become adults, and that is um, trying to make someone else feel okay is often a way of trying to make ourselves feel okay because we're uncomfortable seeing that person in pain. Exactly. 
And the best thing you can do for yourself and the other person is accept that discomfort and accept that pain because then you can honestly deal with the situation and do something that will be beneficial to yourself and the other person. And if you are not in a space where you're capable of being with that level of intensity or discomfort, then it is okay to step away because a lot of students I've had in the past feel obligated to care for others, which is beautiful, but also terrible if they're not in a space where they can do that because then they sacrifice yes. themselves and that's not going to be valuable. Put your own, you know, gas mask, your own air mask, your own whatever oxygen on before you put someone else's oxygen on because otherwise you're useless, right? You're, you're valuable in the moment to that person. You're not valuable in the long run, right? Yes. So I think a lot of what I hear you saying and what I'm interpreting you to mean is that in general, what would benefit someone who is grieving, what would benefit someone who is pre-grieving the loss of someone is essentially what a lot of the dying ritual would be is kind of grieving in advance or being able to be present and be grateful while you're kind of simultaneously, you know, pre-grieving this loss yeah. uh, is really about, well, A, not making it wrong, not making the discomfort wrong, not making the intensity wrong, accepting it for the person who's experiencing it and accepting it yourself. Mm. So then there is less judgment as you navigate it. Yes. Either as the one who is helping care for the passing person or as someone who is caring for the person who's caring for the passing person or the recently passed person. Does that seem to track with your experience? Yes. And there's, a, there's a woman, um, she's become a friend of mine, but she lost two of her children um, when they were relatively young. Uh, actually, her husband killed them. Um, it's pretty, it's pretty profound. And she, wow. every, Every single day, they've been, they passed away almost nine years ago. Every single day, post pictures of them. The ones that she still has of them. Um, maybe two, three, four times a day. And I remember being on her feed and she wrote this beautiful poem about her daughter. And there is a woman that said, you know, I'm, I feel sorry for you that you can't move on, right? And she wrote the most eloquent, I mean, I would have been like, fuck you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Maybe on my inside voice, maybe not my outside voice, but, um, Gotta be. but it was a great example of how her posting pictures of her children was making this woman feel uncomfortable. Right. That makes sense. Like, oh yeah. Then just leave her page. Like yeah, just exactly. don't her page. Like, I, I couldn't have been there for that. That would have been far too intense for me. I would have seen that a couple days in a row and been unfollow. Yeah. There's no way that I could process all that myself. Exactly. And it, so this is her way of grieving. This is her way of keeping them alive. This is her way of celebrating them. And it's all very celebratory. And she said, you know, kindly leave my page. I'm not going to not post my babies. Yeah. And if this is the way I need to do it, this is the way I need to do it. Yeah. You know, I send you love. I hope you never have to experience what I'm experiencing. And thank you so much for your feedback. But please leave my page. It was like, sure. wow. So that's what, I feel like that's a really extreme example. But yeah. it made this woman uncomfortable. And it mm. was about this woman. Um, so once again, everybody gets to grieve the way they need to grieve. Mm -hmm. Sometimes if they're doing drugs, 
and over drinking, probably not the best way to grieve. I'm not advocating that we hold space for that. But I'm saying, you know, people are really creative in how they're going to, to cope. And we need to allow them the freedom to do that. Ice cream, perhaps? Exactly. I see nothing wrong with ice cream <laughs> or, bacon. or bacon. I think bacon's appropriate. <laughs> bacon and ice cream work. Um, <laughs> really, for me, because I know I have judgment around these types of things, um, both just from a discomfort, which isn't necessarily judgment inherently, it's just discomfort that can lead to judgment. Some intense experiences are no good for me. Uh, but just even when you're talking about <clears throat> everyone deals with grief differently, there's a part of my brain that immediately triggers on this idea of what's the healthiest way for me to do this, right? Because that's my focus, that's my bias, yeah? And so yes. I'm thinking um, in the choices that I have, the spectrum of most effective to least effective and kind of or can you Venn diagram that somehow with um, least healthy to most healthy and see if I can get most effective and most healthy to intersect as best as possible. But that's my own experience and that was what make me, makes me feel good. And so it's tough for me to watch someone make choices that I think are not healthy. Right. Um, and it's, you know, my heart is bleeding everywhere and cracking open as I'm like, but I want you to be healthy and happy and safe. And yes. you're, you're not getting any of those three. You're getting some false happy um, through whatever, whether it's substance or activity yes. or what have you. And then I have to remind myself what you just said, which is, it's not my grief. Right. I don't get to make that choice. Right. I'm projecting myself on that person and my values on that person. And so it's time for me to take a breath and kind of step back. And especially if I love that person, then it's an opportunity to express that love instead of by getting all up in their shit and yes. trying to solve their problem for them. It's my opportunity then to kind of enact some self-awareness and self-control and say, okay, you do you, I can or I cannot be here for you doing you, but I'll love you from over here. Right. If that's what I have to do, which I've had to do a couple of times. Um, yes. And that, that's tough for me because I love people <laughs> and I want them to be okay. <laughs> um, but it also just is what it is. I'm not doing them any good by being in their shit being like, have you thought of these 10 other things that could make you feel better about her? <laughs> Here's a book. Here's another book. Here's another. I'm like, uh, no, no, no. <laughs> Take my no. class on yada, yada. Right? Like, Listen to this podcast. It's like, no, thank you. Yeah. I would like to cry, please. I would like to be depressed. Thanks. And, and even just you saying that reminds me that, oh, sometimes I don't ask enough questions. It's not that you have to pepper a person with questions, but just saying, what would you like right now? And it's okay for the person to say, I don't know. And I'm like, okay, that's fine too. Yeah. Well, hey, would you just, the same question you were talking about, like you're crying. Would you like me to stay with you? Would you like me to go away? Do you need a hug? Right? Sometimes people will say, I don't know. And so I just make a choice. <laughs> I just kind of go, okay, well, it seems pretty safe to just sit next to you because you always tell me to go away and I'm not touching you. So that is an increase in your intensity. So I'm just going to be here right now. 
Yes. And then you can tell me, you can lean on me or you can tell me to go away or whatever else. This is a good neutral spot. This is the one I'm choosing this time. Yes. Another time I might choose to put my arm on your shoulder if you see it or no. Another time I might say, okay, well, I'll be over here. You can call to me. You can come get me if you want. You know, but asking the question in the first place is enormous. Yes. Even if they don't know. Yes. I think anyway. Cool. Well, <laughs> I'm trying to think if there is any last thoughts to have. I mean, we talked about recommendations. We talked a little bit about reconciliation. We talked mostly about your mom. I guess, was there anything from your experience, the loss of your, your father that you wanted to touch on in the context that we've been discussing? Hmm. Um, I think I just, I just, yeah, I have a very, I had a very different relationship with my father than my mother. I didn't have a lot of work to do when he was dying with him specifically. Mm. In fact, I could sit and watch Fox news with him, you know, and drink whiskey with him, um, mm. and laugh at like the stupid stuff I used to do or my dad I did a lot of my dad was very open to having discussions my whole life so he and I had a very specific dynamic it wasn't like he would be surprised if I said dad I don't like that you did this or dad tell me a little bit more about this I think I got to witness my dad be loved by his own father um, and that was extremely uh, emotional for me to observe. I think he spent most of his life wanting his dad to really love him. And I mean, love him, like say, I love you. <laughs> um, yeah. And hold his hands and say, I'm proud of you. And I got to witness my grandpa do that to my dad. And I could tell, like, I saw my dad smile, like he was a five-year-old boy. And I knew that he would be okay if he died. Like that's really what he needed at the end of the day. Um, he had done everything else and made his amends and, you know, did a lot. He was an alcoholic. So he spent 15 years sober. He made all of his amends. Like my dad just like cleaned up shop. So by the time that he died, it was like super clean, you know, Yeah. super clean. So I think the only difference between my dad and my mom is I feel my dad. I literally feel my dad every day. Mm. So I, I actually feel my dad's presence. Um, He's a part of I, you in a way that your mom is not. It's my mom. I do not feel that often, actually. Um, mm -hmm. And I think I've been surprised by that. I do. I think everyone has different belief systems. I mean, I've always questioned that. Like, yeah, you know. But I'm open. And, but I feel my dad. I feel like my dad is very much orchestrating things in my life for me. I feel. Mm. On many levels, my dad is being my dad, esoterically. He wasn't around that much when I was a kid. Um, so I feel like now he's showing up <laughs> in a way that I wasn't expecting. Yeah. It's very different. Yeah. Huh. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. I also like, I think of my dad. My dad had a very funny sense of humor. Mm -hmm. Um, and so when my mom died, I, I was like, I was sitting there talking to my stepmom and I'm like, I can totally hear my dad going, I can't get away from you, you know, like about my mom, like, seriously, 
I, I can I die and you have to die too. Like I, I just like, I can hear my dad up like somewhere smoking a cigar, you know, my mom standing there going, seriously, can you give me five years without you? Like in a loving way, but you know, sure. like, like seriously, why yeah. you gotta follow me? So he had that kind of sense of humor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, That's the only difference. Yeah. 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 The, the thing, so what, what I'm getting from this, from this part of the conversation is that you had already had a transformative experience with your father. So his passing was not the transformative experience. Exactly. He, his death was how he lived his life with you. You were mm -hmm. able to have a very different experience, therefore, than having had an unresolved relationship with your mom. And so your relationship transformed in her passing. Yes, and after. To, and after, mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. opposed to beforehand. So especially with the family dynamics coming out and everything else is a very, very different experience than because clearly some of that family dynamic, because I assume your father was part of the dysfunction too, because he was a part yes. of the childhood, um, that dysfunction didn't come out in his passing. No. Only in your mother's passing. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Very. Yeah. Especially losing them so close to each other, I can't imagine that was... I'm sure they didn't make things less intense. <laughs> <Let's Right. laughs> <laughs> I just, let's just put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> let's just put it that way. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for hanging out with me today. I appreciate it. Hopefully, um, the parts of the conversation that got a little choppy aren't so much to distract from the content. And certainly, if there's anything that's too wonky, I can try to, you know, sneak in a, sh a short call with you some other time. Be like, hey, could you talk more about? that um but i suspect i suspect we'll be good i hope we're good thanks for talking about this topic as well i think it's really important absolutely yeah and it struck me because i myself have a pretty profound fear of death uh, when i was growing up i didn't have a, a profound fear of death and in fact i was okay about being around dead things and i felt very confident in or comfortable kind of being with passing, having lost my grand, you know, my three grandparents, well, two of my grandparents when I was uh, in my early adolescence, and I was there each time a, a pet was put down, and um, I felt very right, and it felt very good to be there. It felt like that's how it should be, mm -hmm. um, was to be there, and then um, I had a certain point in my life where I'm with the partner that I'm with and suddenly I, I had something to kind of live for, I suppose. And then the thought of dying was absolutely terrifying. Yeah. Um, because now there's something to lose. Yes. And, um, and thinking about how that informs my decisions um, really made me think because of this conversation I had with my buddy Chris how would my life be different if I wasn't afraid of death mm -hmm. how, how would my life be how would everyone's lives be different if we were able to be present with death mm -hmm. um, so I'm grateful to have people that want to talk to me about it yeah because um, it it helps me consider a, a different perspective um, because I am, I am not convinced 
of any particular metaphysical reality. Um, and so some of the comfort that people get from being confident about that, I simply don't have. I understand that. So I, I've been meditating more on what does it mean for me if when I pass, that's it. Yep. That this is the sum total of my existence. What does that mean? And what does that mean for the life I've lived? And what does that mean for the people that get here to live after me? Because if I'm not the center of the universe, <laughs> right. if, then when I pass, things keep moving and, and I'm gone except for whatever ripples um, right. caused in people's lives. So what do I want those ripples to be? Um, if I lived my life like there was no afterlife, would that change anything? Hmm. Maybe it wouldn't change anything. Maybe it would just change how I feel about it or how, but I would still make all the same choices. I would just feel differently when I made those choices. Who knows? Who knows? So um, having these conversations is really fantastic because it, it gives me a perspective on others' experiences in their direct relationship with death and how they experience in their lives. And it gives me other things to consider when I meditate on my own, my own life. Um, I was once told by the teacher, that same teacher who passed away, you know, look over your left shoulder and, and there is death. And if you want to ask death a question, ask death a question. And the first time he said that, I just like, I, I could never do that because I don't, I don't want to believe you're real. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I can't, I can't consider talking to you because talking to you means I'm mortal and I'm yes. going to die. And I don't want yes. to die. I am planning yeah. on living to at least 120 years of age <laughs> with modern medical advances. Yes. <laughs> Maybe then I'll be ready to go, but don't talk to me about it right now. That scares the shit out of me. So, <laughs> um, so I'm still not there yet where I could be like, yeah, I acknowledge that as any type of reality, um, but I'm in a space where I can at least think about what if this is it? And what does that mean for me in my life? Mm -hmm. Just saying that there's a little existential dread that starts to build up in my chest. This is like, no, stop it. Don't, don't think about that. That's terrible. Um, but, uh, but yeah. So, so again, thank you for chatting with me about this. My internet yeah. apparently is unstable once again. Um, and yeah, I hope we'll get to have another conversation very soon. Me too. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and here's a little preview of what's coming up next week. In that case, shall we start? Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. Well, I would like to welcome everyone to this series of episodes uh, on improving the mind-body connection. And I would like to introduce you to my guest, Selena Reams. Say hi. Hi, Ryan. It's so great to be here with you. I've just really been enjoying just the chat we've had, just warming up and, and getting ready for the show. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. We've already been hanging out for an hour. <laughs> sure. It's great, though. It's so fun. <laughs> it is. And I'm sure we could hang out longer if we didn't have, uh, if we didn't have a time limit. Yes. So, I, I was hoping that you could just introduce yourself to the, to the sure. people. Yeah. Uh, a little bit about what you do, who you are, and then, uh, then we'll get going. Great. Thank you, Ryan. Um, so just for your listeners, my name is Selena Reams, and I'm what I like to call a mind-body educator. So I have a really long background in body work, in massage therapy, and craniosacral therapy, 
somatic experience, all that stuff. You don't need to know what it means. But um, just say a long experience in body work. I'm also in my licensure, I'm an occupational therapist, a mental health occupational therapist. So what I do is I essentially combine a lot of those things from, from my lifetime of experiences and work in different settings. And I now do still body work, which I love because it informs everything I'm doing and the people I'm working with. But I also do a lot of mind-body education, working with mindfulness meditation practices, and um, also doing, you know, a lot of kind of pushing out into the online course world as well, which is such an interesting journey. <laughs> yeah, which is actually how we met, which is, yes. a, is a lot of fun. Yes, totally fun. Yeah. Lots of good work. <laughs> lots, lots of good work. Yeah, that was a fantastic weekend. And um, oh, super. Got, got another one coming up pretty soon. Yes, we do. <laughs> so uh, looking forward to that. Um, so what does mind body mean to you? Like the show? Consider subscribing through my Patreon at patreon.com slash lifecoachingwithryan. You'll get early access to shows and potentially a host of other rewards. Want more? You can also find me streaming on Twitch at twitch.tv slash lifecoachingwithryan, where I play some games and I continue the conversation. I'm pretty active on Instagram. You can find me at instagram.com slash educate for the number four underscore life. That's where I do my book club. I record the book club episodes live on Mondays, and then I post them to IGTV. Later, I post them on YouTube. See you next time.